Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is someone whose daughter has sensory processing disorder. Pamela Hunter created a line of weighted blankets called Sheltered to help her daughter and others around the country. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much. So happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. This is exciting, especially yeah, at a time where it's hard to connect with people. It feels really nice to be able just to chat with somebody. <laughs> I agree. Even strangers. Um, hopefully we will not be strangers after this. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. I am Pamela Hunter. I live in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in California, actually Huntington Beach. <laughs> um, and I live in Los Angeles now, specifically Mount Washington. And we have three daughters, a teenager who's 17. Uh, my daughter, her name's Jordan Ransom, who is six years old, and Story, who is four. Ransom, her middle name's Faye. Ransom Faye is our special little girl who at about six months old, we realized something was a little bit different about her. Um, she was always a little bit uncomfortable. And the doctors would always describe her as she's very erect. She never just relaxes her body. So she's just very tense. Um, and at two and a half, we finally got her diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. I want to hear more of this because you're the first person that we've interviewed with this disorder. And I want to make sure people know more about it. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about the condition and its symptoms and how they were presenting themselves in her? Yes, yes, yes. So with Ransom, we had taken her to multiple different doctors. We actually had gastroenterologists at Children's Hospital looking at her. We thought she might potentially have some gut health issues because she was always really erect. Her body, she would never relax. She never hugged us. And a lot of times babies, they sort of just squish into you or, you know, babies are so cuddly and squishy and like moldable. They could just sort of fit into whatever position you put them in. She was not like that. She was always very upright. Even when she was born, she could pretty much turn over front to back, back to front at one or two days old. And she was in the NICU, which was also a little bit crazy that our our newborn baby, who was the biggest one in there, but was in there because she had jaundice, really, mm -hmm. really bad jaundice. I didn't actually know that it could be that scary or potentially even life-threatening. Um, so her bilirubin numbers were really high. So she was in the NICU for a long time, but she could roll over. And even then the doctors and nurses were saying she's alert and she's very upright. She had so many different challenges until about two and a half. She would have trouble with noise. She would have trouble with the light. And it, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly what's bothering a baby because <laughs> they can't tell you. So a lot of it was just trial and error. She would scream every time she was in the car, no matter what. She never fell asleep in the car. Um, we would drive my round trip to get my oldest daughter from school was about 45 minutes and she would scream the entire time. Really? It was pretty awful. And I just thought, okay, well, maybe she gets car sick. Maybe once she's one and we turn her around, which is actually early for it, it's legal. You can turn them at one facing forward, but I had wanted to keep her backward until she was like in college, just <laughs> to be really safe. But with her, the screaming was so bad. And it, it wasn't just like an irritation. 
it was a scream where if you hear a kid screaming on the playground, every mom's ears perk up, even strangers, and you know something is wrong with that kid. The screams were like that. It was like, wow, something is really wrong with her. She's like in pain or or something. So we started to realize that certain textures would bother her um, as far as clothing or blankets. We noticed that transitions from a light room to a dark room and vice versa were really difficult for her. Transitions from the car were hard to the inside. Anytime she changed her environment, while in the same breath, I can also say that when she's really upset, we had to drastically change her environment. So it was... was We just felt like we were going a little bit insane because we had this baby that we could, after six months, she was like an angel until she was about six months. And then after that, she started um, getting really irritated with certain things. So it was a lot of trial and error. And she would also not let us put her down. So I had to have pulled her for most of the time. Even and I breastfed her until she was about two, but even the breastfeeding was a little bit different. She wouldn't take a pacifier or have, she didn't have a comfort item. I was her comfort item. So I remember putting her in the carrier, like a, a little ergo carrier facing me and I would just breastfeed her, pop a boob in her mouth and she would stay latched for hours. And if I tried to remove my breast from her mouth, she would just scream. So the only way to sort of like pacify her was to breastfeed her all day long. So I had to hold her and breastfeed her all day. And then once she started walking and getting more active, she wasn't needing it as much. But other things would bother her. Like she couldn't wear shoes. She would wear footed pajamas all day. We had to even do therapy to try and get her to wear regular clothes. So different textures were hard for her. It's hard because there's so many things. And with sensory processing disorder, your body is having trouble processing different sensations and different senses. So your taste buds, touch and feel, temperature, so many different things can affect you. So, and it sort of seemed to change. Like every month that would go by, like certain things would get better. She would learn how to cope with, uh, say temperatures or like she could only take super, super hot baths or freezing cold baths and a lukewarm bath would feel almost painful to her. Um, or that was the reaction we got from her. Then for many, many months, she was only calm when she was in water. So we would take probably 12, to 15 baths a day, which feels really wasteful. But when you're desperate (laughs) to help calm your kid down, you'll take as many baths as needed. (laughs) Wow. There's a lot. (laughs) There is a lot. And so were you working at the time? Because it sounds like this is a 24 seven responsibility. So I was not. uh, My oldest daughter, I was a single mom with her for about eight or nine years. And I worked one, two, three jobs at a time trying to make ends meet. And my dream the entire time was just to be a stay-at-home mom or at least to be able to maybe work part-time and spend more time with her. She spent a lot of time in, in daycare with roommates, with neighbors, so that I could work to pay for everything. And so when Ransom came along, I was so excited. I was, I was married and although it was still hard not to have a job. He wanted me to kind of have that dream that I had always had to stay home with my daughter or with my child and see what that was like to actually be able to take a bigger part in raising her. Although my oldest turned out amazing and it takes a village and all the people that helped me raise her are absolutely incredible. I still selfishly wanted to be there for my kid more so I had the opportunity with Ransom to stay home and, and I did and I would just, you know, be in charge of the household and um, we had bought a fixer upper house and I was trying to navigate that while we had her and at some point we had to just stop trying to fix the house up because getting her evaluated and taking her to doctors and trying to get therapy for her ended up being a full-time job, a complete full-time job. And the harder part that I think nobody really talks about or people talk about it, but you don't understand the impact of it until it happens to you. But 
trying to get things covered by an insurance company is so, so difficult, especially when it's not a straightforward diagnosis. And when you're having to see specialists, we had a PPO, we had actually really great insurance, but there's a lot of gray areas and there's not a ton of kids that have sensory processing disorder in the way that she had it. And it's hard to know one, what therapies she even needs. So a lot of the things that you're doing when you're trying to get your kid help is you're just doing trial and error. You're going to any and every specialist that you can, you don't know where to start, you kind of start with a pediatrician. Um, We were told by the pediatrician that she was very honest with us. She was, man, I, I see everything that's going on and I'm not totally equipped to help you with this, but I know that she's got some sensory difficulties. So she referred us to a couple places, but getting the insurance to cover things, that was almost a full-time job in and of itself. And ransom, I think starting around six months, she stopped sleeping through the night, which is a little bit crazy because she was such a good baby for the first six months. She would sleep through the night, maybe only wake up once. And I was thinking, man, I'm just really good at this mom thing. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> I'm like, geez, why, why do people get so stressed out? Like, you know, I raised one kid who was really great. Um, my oldest quite literally has never even thrown a tantrum. Oh my God. Yeah. It, which seems so weird to me, but she came out like a little adult. I've always been able to talk with her and communicate with her really well. And, and maybe that was even a point of pride for me. I was thinking, man, I'm doing, doing a great job. I'm only 18 years old and I'm raising this little girl. And she was just really, really good. She adapted really well to new environments. And then we had ransom and the first six months were great. I'm thinking, man, I think I'm just made to be a mom. I just, <laughs> I have got this thing dialed in. I've always loved kids. I could have 12 more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we hit that six month mark and she started getting more irritated and I'm really active and I don't like failing at things. And so she presented these challenges and I rose to the occasion. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, she's really fussy. I'm going to, I'm going to calm her down. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to carry her around. I'm just going to bounce the whole day. And so the things that I was doing, I would just do these things, but they were so extra and I wasn't realizing how extra they were because I already sort of, it's hard for me to sit still. So I would just bounce her and I would realize after three or four hours, man, I've been doing dishes one handed and cleaning the house and I'm still holding this baby bouncing her. And for some reason, it didn't really click at the time that that's not entirely normal. Um, Some babies need a little bit of extra love and care, but after weeks of doing that, not being able to just set her down to take a shower or whatnot, and then also having it get worse and worse, I feel like it just didn't hit me right away that it probably wasn't entirely um, typical. And yeah, that's when we kind of started trying to get her some help. I feel like there's when you're dealing with um, sensory processing disorder and later finding out that she is like on the spectrum and possibly has some other things going on, you don't know where to start. You just start asking questions and telling your story. I think one thing that I wish I would have done was written it all out word for word, because you tell your story so many times to so many specialists. And at some point, you get so used to saying it that you you sort of like casually tell it. And I'm sure I I left out parts and part of me wishes that I would have just written everything down in a really like well to understand letter so I could go to the specialist and just hand them the letter and say, I've told this 18 times. I'm sorry. Can you just read this? (laughs) Let me know if you have any notes or questions. (laughs) You bring up so many amazing points and that being a huge one. And I totally relate to that where I feel like it's scripted what I share with people when I see a new doctor. I was in the hospital last July and I remember walking into the ER and my doctor had already called the ER doctor to let them know my background. And I was like, wait, you don't need my story? Like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, I don't want to tell it anymore. But 
it's interesting because I've been in a writing class for a few years now. And the one that I'm in right now, I've been extracting more and more pieces of my story and going back in time, thinking about these little memories and pulling it all together so that it doesn't sound as scripted and isn't just all bunched together because every you know moment of it is meaningful. And there's different aspects that are really important to remember and trace back. Um, you also addressed the insurance concept, which really hasn't been addressed so much on the show. So I really appreciate you saying that. I was giggling to myself as you were talking about it, picturing my mom with all of her index cards and post-its with, you know, <laughs> Joe, 5.20 p.m. Here's this phone number. This is what he said. Okay, 6 p.m. Spoke to Sophie. I mean, all of those little details. You had the notebook. My mom had scattered pieces of paper and putting all the pieces together to try to get insurance to cover things and doctors to listen and figure out all the answers. So I appreciate you sharing that. So you acknowledge that at two and a half is when she was officially diagnosed. What did that mean for you to have that diagnosis? And what education did the doctors provide you on how to navigate this going forward? So, and this is also, I feel like her entire story, I could probably start my sentence with, so this is tricky. Um, <laughs> So as much as I say she was diagnosed, everything is tentative. It wasn't a set in stone diagnosis. Right before she turned two, we were referred to the regional center. And the regional center is this amazing state-funded place where you can get evaluated and they help you cover services needed if they see that your child um, you know, meets certain qualifications. So Ransom is so bright. She has speech. And she has really great mobility and motor skills, fine motor skills even. Um, her balance is a little bit off, so she falls a lot still to this day. She trips on stairs all the time, runs into things. Um, her depth perception is a little bit off, but I know a lot of kids like that. So that in and of itself is not you know, anything to be alarmed about, but that paired with all the other things that she was doing um, is what drew them to the conclusion that she struggles, quote unquote, struggles with sensory processing disorder. And so in order to get these full evaluations, so the regional center sends three separate therapists out to do one to two hour evaluations each in our home, which was amazing. It's all covered by the state. I think they take your insurance and if they can bill, they will. But for the most part, it's all state funded. So that is a huge recommendation for me. If anybody has questions, if they're questioning anything about their child, it's not something to be ashamed of. I think it's really, really great because early intervention, which is what this was, is literally the best thing that you can do for your child. Because some of the things things that they're struggling with, you can easily help them overcome it with just a little bit of therapy. And then they may not need it again for the rest of their life. And that was literally what I was thinking going into this. Like, oh, she doesn't have that much difficulty. She obsessively chews ice and crunchy things. She would really crave things with a big impact. Like she would run into walls and run into things really hard. And I later found out that's because she, she needed to feel things and she had trouble really feeling them intensely. So she would overdo things. She would chew things that like, you know, gave her that really good satisfaction in her jaw and they call that input. She needed to get input in her muscles, in her jaw, in her joints, um, in her body. You can get that from jumping. You can get it from swinging. You can get it from pressing your hands together and squeezing Play-Doh, stuff like that. It's really good for kids with sensory difficulties. So three separate people came out. They met with her. They met with us. It's hours and hours of interviewing the parents really is what it is because they want to hear your story. And at first, you know, we kind of downplayed a lot of her difficulties because 
we're like, okay, well, it's like 50, 50, you know, she has difficulty this much, but, but then she's kind of okay. And she presents as typical. Um, later I found out that's not what you want to do. <laughs> you want to tell them everything that they're struggling with and let them know the really intense times that they're struggling. Because I think it, caused them to pause a little bit every time I said, well, well, it's not that bad. And so then they're thinking, oh, okay, well, I guess it's not that difficult. Seems kind of typical. Um, many of the struggles that she had when she was little are things that all children struggle with. And so that's where you find the difficulty. These are things that all children developmentally will struggle with as, you know, different areas of their brains and their bodies develop. And usually when one area of a child's body or brain is developing, um, maybe the other areas fall short for a little bit. And, you know, it's just like this little roller coaster until things start balancing out once they get a little bit older. Well, while all these things are typical, the difficulties, she was having so much more. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash madevisible. That's betterhelp.com slash madevisible. And now, back to the show. So I would tell people, oh yeah, she has these... I would call them tantrums at the time. And I later found out that they're literally called meltdowns and there is a difference. A tantrum is like, um, you know, kids sort of not getting their way and they're throwing a tantrum, but a literal meltdown is when a person or child has quite literally hit their limit and they just can't, they just can't anymore. They can't go on. They can't, you know, keep participating in life in somewhat of a functional way, and they just lose it. And so she was having these meltdowns where her her cup was full. <laughs> I've described this before as a lot of people start their day with an empty bucket. And they're walking around life with this empty bucket. And as certain things stress them out throughout the day, water gets put in their bucket. So, you know, and then toward the end of the day, they're just almost done. You know, their bucket is almost full. Um, but thank goodness it's almost bedtimes so they can recharge. Well, ransom and kids with neurological difficulties, sensory difficulties, um, they start their day with a full bucket of water. And so when they step out of bed that day, they're walking through life with a full bucket, just trying not to spill it. And then anything that gets added to it, which would be um, clothing or a gentle breeze that we might think is nice, it could totally set her off. Um, a helicopter flying overhead, a phone ringing that she wasn't expecting, uh, water spilling on her by accident. All of these things have been known to set her off in the past. And if she's walking around with her bucket full and any one of those things happen, it's just meltdown city. And it takes a parent to help her to regulate her own body so that she can get back to neutral. So what happens is these therapists come to the house, they evaluate her in her own, you know, safe place, which is her home. And they were able to take notes and notice things that we didn't even notice. Um, that's when they pointed out, do you know that she walks on her toes? I said, 
oh yeah, but that's just so cute, right? She's like a little ballerina. And and they said, yeah, it, I mean, yes, it is adorable, but it also is pretty common with kids with sensory processing disorder or sensory difficulties because when you walk on the balls of your feet, you're getting more input into that one area of your foot than you would if you were walking flat-footed. And so it's another way for kids or people to get input into their bodies is to walk on their tiptoes or the balls of their feet. So I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. So from then on, we started picking up on different things that she would do, things she was chewing on and things that she was extra rough with. And we were noticing, oh, okay, it's because she's getting more input into her body, into her muscles. And what that does is it calms them down. Um, Otherwise, it's almost like someone described it as feeling like you're sort of floating and you need the weight of things or people or the world or, you know, a lot of times you'll wear like a weighted vest for little kids with sensory difficulties. It just helps them feel grounded and feel where their body is in space. And so after all these evaluations, they told us, you know, she's so bright and she's so great, but she seems to have a lot of difficulty self-regulating, regulating her emotions. And so she made it into the regional center just based upon the fact that her social emotional um, was just not really up to par with other kids, which sounds a little bit nuts because she was two or just before she was two. It's like what two-year-old social emotional levels are, you know, I don't know, able to function within a group and calm themselves down. But it, it was enough that they really noticed it and said, no, we can definitely tell she needs some extra help and that she needs occupational therapy mixed in with a little bit of physical therapy. Uh, so yeah, so she got in with regional center and we started getting to go to therapy. They would help her with transitions and it was really, really amazing, but they're only allowed, I think they can only be in this early intervention therapy where it's covered by regional center until they turn three. So she was there once all the paperwork goes through and the evaluations, it's, it's like a four to six month process. So when every day feels like the hardest day of your life, when you're trying to, from the second you wake up to a screaming child, you're just like trying to put fires out all day, trying to calm her down and make sure she eats and. Um, I mean, it it was probably like anywhere from 12 to 20 complete meltdowns within a day. There wasn't a single hour that would go by where she wouldn't have a meltdown. So once we got her into this school uh, for early intervention, it was the biggest godsend. I, I can't even stress that enough. And she was there for four to six months, not very long, but just until she turned three and it helped so much. She could wear clothes. She wore footed pajamas every single day until then. Cause it's almost like it protects your body. Um, and so she would do footed pajamas and we had to do therapy to get her to wear clothes. She didn't want to wear separates because when pants and shirts separate, there's a chance that someone could touch her skin. There's a chance that the breeze could blow her skin and it would feel different from the areas of her skin that is covered with clothing. So we had to really do work with her and do therapy on that. Just putting stuff over her head was difficult. Putting shoes on was hard. So what we ended up doing was having her in full body footed pajamas and we would dress her over them. <laughs> we, she would wear clothing on top of her footed pajamas and shoes that were two sizes too big so that she could wear shoes. Because when it was raining, it was hard to have her walk around in footed pajamas. <laughs> I'm sure. And I'm sure also the weather in general must have had an impact on her. My best friend actually is a preschool teacher and does early intervention. So I know a lot about the type of work that is done on that end. And it's really interesting to hear the parents' perspective of how valuable that resource is to children at such a young age and how valuable it was to you guys. It's a really fascinating thing to, I'm sure, witness your child going through and seeing what she responds to and what she doesn't. You shared with me that at one point she was hospitalized during a very difficult episode and briefly control was taken away from you as her parents. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? I know this is a touchy subject. 
Yeah. So um, it was right before right before Christmas, and with ransom. So she's six now. Um, she's going to be seven. So we've had a couple years since the early intervention, and we actually have lost a lot of um, services to help her. And going into kindergarten, the school district and regional center both said, you know, she's tested out of needing more services. She seems great. Um, and since I was the only one going with her to therapy and really seeing her having these, these meltdowns and really needing help, my husband, bless his heart, uh, he wasn't really seeing these things. And so he kind of sided with the school district at the time, just because they are experts, quote unquote, (laughs) experts. And so what we realized is that school and in clinical settings, in classroom settings, Ransom does really, really well because she craves structure. And so in a classroom, she knows exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. They have calendars, they have charts. She sits in the same seat every single time. And at home, even if we try to have as you know, as strict of a schedule as possible, it's still home and there's other children there and life. So she has a really hard time being at home with us, which is really, really difficult. But so over the the holiday or approaching the holiday, Ransom had been, it had been quite some time since she had received therapy. And even when she was younger, she actually went on a medication to help balance out her moods so that we could get her to the point where she could actually learn because she was just having meltdown after meltdown. And so we agreed to try a medication with her and it ended up again, being a total godsend. There was so much guilt and shame that I had, um, giving my, oh, I'm cry. um, giving my child a medication. Um, but it changed her life. So, um, so, so grateful that we did that. It just helped her across the board. She was able to sit in a classroom and, and learn and interact with other kids and everyone loves her. So that's amazing. So we finally get to this point where everyone's telling us that nothing is wrong with her. So we had maybe six months earlier, weaned her off of the medication that she was on. It was sort of a blanket medication. Actually, I can't even remember the name right now. I'll try and remember it, but, um, and they give it to lots of kids who have um, autism or mood disorders. And so we, we slowly eased her off of the medication and it had been about six months and it's so apparent now looking back that her moods were getting more and more intense and she just in a split second can change and have a Um, like a really, really intense reaction. And so we were finally at the point where she was having really intense reactions to things to the point where we, we couldn't control her. And I don't really know how to describe what happened as other than it was sort of like a psychotic break. Um, She had sort of this psychosis (laughs) um, breakdown and we ended up needing to take her to the hospital where they made the decision that she was a harm to herself and others. And so we had to relinquish control for a short period of time. That was quite literally the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. I feel, and for probably for her too, and I feel like all of us still have a lot of trauma surrounding that time. Um, but we were able to get her back before Christmas. And I think that it jump started some really, really amazing things. While I don't agree with everything, how everything went down and how it happened, um, it did help us jump start to get her the help that she needs. But it's hard to feel sort of feel crazy. I, I, I don't like using that word. I don't really know how else to describe the feeling that I get as a parent when I'm trying to explain to people who have been around Ransom and only seen her act in sort of a typical way. And then just to know that when we're at home, it's like an hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, that we're sort of holding our breath and trying our best to live a 
just a relaxed life, but we're on guard. We have to be like on guard at all times in case the switch flips and she completely loses it and could potentially hurt herself or someone else. So it's hard to explain that to friends and family who have only seen her in a really, really amazing positive light. And don't get me wrong, she is one of the most amazing children I've ever met. I think she'll do amazing things. She has such a sweet, sweet heart and she feels things on such a deep level. And I feel like that is probably why she's how she is the way she is. She just feels everything so deeply, whether it's emotionally or physically. But it's hard to have people question you all the time. Or I've literally been accused of of having Munchausen's disease where I'm trying to put this on my daughter or put these things on my child. So part of me through her hospitalization and us losing control for a little bit, um, I realized that I need to just stick with my gut and stick with what I know. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or says because their 30 minute interaction with my child is not going to show them the whole story. And um, it, it gave me a lot of confidence because I had probably five or six doctors and social workers who could see that my child needed help. And I do regret taking her off the medication and I do regret not fighting harder to get her help. And a lot of that was me listening to outside influences. A lot of it was um, me listening to family members and friends who would question my judgment. And I was sort of embarrassed um, thinking, wow, all these people think that I'm a little nuts. They think that I'm like overdoing it or, or exaggerating. And if anything, I think when I do talk about ransom, I'm pretty conservative and what the reality is at home. So yeah, that was a little bit about her hospitalization. It was, it was a very, very difficult time, but it did jumpstart some good stuff. So she now has a new psychiatrist and we have a behavioral therapist. Um, we were starting to get closer to getting her evaluated and then the world stopped working (laughs) COVID-19 and And then uh, we were back at square one. So all therapies were taken away. Everything was gone up until then. So from Christmas until March, we were paying out of pocket, Um, quite literally had to take out loans to pay for her services because at this point, no one's covering her. And if you want to get evaluations, it all takes time. But when your child needs something like you can't, you can't go a couple days because it's just getting worse. Her moods are getting worse. She does have a pre-diagnosis. They're all pre-diagnosis until they pretty much hit like adolescence or teenage years. They need them to like hit puberty before they get um, set in stone diagnosis as far as bipolar disorder, mood disorder, stuff like that. So she has a pre-diagnosis for a mood disorder and they'll be able to confirm that when she's older, but I can't wait six more years (laughs) to, to get that. So we had to get her some therapy. We really wanted to get her as much help as we could. So I kind of just put my head down. We took out some loans and we just had to pay cash for everything. And, um, when I say that that was a hardship, like, I don't even know how to, that's like the understatement of the world. (laughs) Um, And a lot of it is when you're doing it on your own and you're just paying specialists and you're just hoping for the best, it might not even be the exact help she needs. But when things are so difficult, especially with a child with a mood disorder, you almost don't have a choice. You just have to try whatever you can because they just spiral. So when COVID hit, um, none of her therapists would see her anymore, you know, because it's a global pandemic. (laughs) And so we were left alone at home and it was probably the hardest three months of our life. Harder than the hospitalization, I would even say. So um, now we have someone that comes to the house and helps us with her. She's amazing. She's a behavioral therapist and she works with Ransom and her younger sister's story and helps her to self 
regulate, helps her regulate while her sibling is there, um, helps her regulate her own body through transitions um, from the car to the house, from the house to the dinner table, to the dinner table, to to the kitchen, to bath time. Those are all really difficult for her. So she helps us through those transitions tells us sort of like what's okay bribery <laughs> as far as like um, uh, iPads go and food. Um, but yeah, I feel like we've um, felt very much alone in this journey and it's been hard. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing everything about the hospitalization that you shared and just that in general, the challenges of going through this, I can't even imagine being a parent and watching your child go through this and trying to figure out how to make her feel as comfortable and safe as possible. Have you over time found communities or met other people with children with this condition to relate to what you're going through? Not really. (laughs) I haven't really found a community that fits us because we usually will find people who whose children have um, sort of severe autism, and ransoms uh, ransom doesn't even have an actual autism diagnosis, which makes things difficult. So when I describe her, because she has so many autistic tendencies, we'll say she is on the spectrum. We've been told multiple times she is somewhere on the spectrum, but that her difficulties when she's being evaluated don't actually present themselves to be as difficult as maybe we describe them at home, which is hard for people not to see it. And again, it goes back to clinical settings and classrooms. She does pretty well. So that's hard. So when we have sort of joined some of these online communities or spoken with people in our area, we've never actually met anyone whose children fit into the same category as Ransom. So it's hmm. that's been really hard. Um there's just there's an online community, two of them that I just joined recently, and I'm starting to see people post. And I was actually in tears the other night because I was reading one of these posts, and I finally, for the first time in six years, felt so seen and so understood. Another mom posted about their child having the same um, just like a lot of similarities to ransom with the mood disorder and with having really, really big reactions to things and just a split second and never being able to really leave them. So she's six and well, she's amazing. And if I can get her regulated and watching an iPad, I might be able to like use the restroom for a few minutes. But to this day, we cannot leave her alone. Not that she would even stay alone. She's really dependent on us needing to be next to an adult a lot. So anyway, I read this little post. It was a, it's an online Facebook group. And I read this post, this other mom wrote about their child. And I was just in tears because it was maybe the first time that I had really felt seen. And I think it's, um, it's it's an online thing, so it's not local. And this mom was probably in Colorado or something, <laughs> so it's not like I could have a you know close relationship with them. So- well, I don't know. I have to say I, I sort of disagree on that front because who's to say someone has to be physically in the room with you? I think we're learning, especially given COVID days and this quarantine life is that relationships can maintain themselves virtually. And I think especially those of us in the invisible illness community, like that's a really common thing. So if you can use Zoom and phone calls and texts and however you communicate, it may be a really valuable resource for you to have someone who's been through it. I mean, as many people know who have listened to the show for a while, I didn't share anything about my health with anyone until I was 27 and felt so isolated and feeling like no one else out there had what I had. And then I started connecting with the Immune Deficiency Foundation and meeting people and found a Facebook group and was like, oh my God, I'm not the only person going through this. And there's something really, really settling and reassuring 
to have someone out there. And luckily, you know, which was definitely part of my intention in starting the show was helping people to hear stories like yours and go, oh my God, I'm not the only person facing this. So hopefully someone does hear this podcast and can relate to you and reach out to you because it's such an important story to tell. And I'm sure there are people out there. It's just that people probably have fear and shame in sharing it. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're totally right. Um, I think that is my like driving force in being pretty open with our story. Um, I've always been really open with my life and very open with Ransom and um, her struggles because I've received so much feedback that people, you know, will get their kid evaluated or they've gotten early intervention therapy based on a few things that I said and they didn't even know it was something that they could get checked out or, or get some help for. So I want to be as open as I possibly can be. And like, clearly I'm not an expert. I'm just, I'm a mom who, (laughs) who has been going through a lot with her child. I love my, my child so much and so fiercely, and I would do anything for her. And I just want her to get whatever help and therapy she needs so that she will have the tools she'll need to go through life. And so that is, that's the driving force behind all of this is I want her to be able to know how to navigate life while her body has these feelings, while her mind and her emotions, you know, are going through somewhat of a roller coaster at all times. I want her to have some really concrete tools to know. And I also want her to have as much information about what she's going through so that she can reach out if it gets to points where she thinks she needs extra help from a professional. Um, If she thinks that she needs help coping with something, I never want her to feel sort of what I felt over the last couple of years, which was very alone and nobody has any idea what I'm going through. Because as you just said, it is absolutely not true. And there's, so I feel like when we're, when we share and when we're open, it allows other people to come alongside us and be able to say, Oh my goodness, like me too. (laughs) I, I feel that too. Um, and knowing that you're not alone in something, man, that that's, that's like the best feeling ever. Um, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, but I would also say that if it is something that you're going through, geez, it's so much easier having someone who knows exactly what you mean when you say meltdown or multiple tantrums in an hour or, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. Yeah. It's truly exactly why I started this show was for myself and for other people to feel less alone in what they're going through because it can feel so, so isolating and you truly feel like you're the only person in the world experiencing anything like this. You mentioned earlier the concept of a weighted vest and I know that you have this incredible, incredible business of weighted blankets. Can you talk about them and how Ransom's story ties into you building this business? Yeah. So when we were having her evaluated and taking her to um, her first intervention therapies at this little school, they would put weighted vests on the kids. They would put weighted um, like ankle bracelet things on them and, and weights on their wrists. And it helps a child or helps a person feel where their body is in space because otherwise they kind of just feel like they're sort of floating out there. Um, Ransom, from my understanding, she just maybe sort of felt like she was floating out there and didn't feel very grounded. Um, and so we kept getting recommendations for her weighted vests and uh, weighted um, stuffed animals, anything substantial that she could really feel and put in her lap. And it would help her to feel really grounded and centered. So they also introduced us to the idea of a weighted blanket. And the weighted blankets that they showed us were sort of like a nylon or polyester cover and there was either weighted with it was weighted down with glass beads or sand or poly pellets plastic pellets inside of this what looked like a down comforter so sort of quilted blanket made of nylon or polyester filled with 
something to weigh it down, whether it be sand or beads. And so when they put it on my daughter, I was like, oh, well, I understand this concept. Okay. So it's weight. It's holding her down. It's quite literally calming the nervous system and sending signals to the brain, um, releasing serotonin and dopamine to calm her body down. It's calming her muscles down. It's giving her some really good solid input into her muscles. And it's fairly evenly distributed all over her body. And so it's kind of feeling like a big hug. Okay, I get that. That looks really great. But my child has sound sensitivity. Um, So every time she would move, the beads would sort of move within the blanket and it would set her off. Um, The nylon covers and the polyester covers, she didn't like it touching her body. I didn't either. (laughs) It was like plastic. So I understand that in a clinical setting, you need to be able to sterilize these things. But from my experience with her, she loved really soft, cuddly things. She loved to touch them and play with them. She needed that tactile input um, from different textures, whether that be soft blankets or little bumps or like she used to love touching Velcro, you know, just um, for the different textures. And those are different ways that she could calm her body down. So I looked into weighted blankets and they were kind of pricey. I get it. And I just quit. I'm a designer. I've done interior design. I've done wardrobe. I've done art direction. And I felt kind of awful that I didn't want to buy one of these blankets because I just didn't like them aesthetically. (laughs) So not only did I not like the feel of them and I didn't like that they kind of made noise and they didn't seem as evenly distributed as I would have liked for her. I just really didn't think that they were super pretty, (laughs) which, um, that's a that's my own issue, but I was still willing to purchase them. Um, but I also had this one sort of feeling in my gut that was saying, if I purchase this for her, there's going to be a stigma around this blanket because it looks clinical and it looks like something that if she's using all the time, people are going to look at her and think to themselves, huh, that kid, something's different about her. Um, Or it's going to make her stand out as needing something. And I didn't want her to feel like it was um, like different. I didn't want any stigmas around it. I didn't want her to be self-conscious using it. Um, And so these were just all the things that were going through my head at the time. And we tried a few out and she didn't love them. So One day I was at this yard sale and I found some fabric. We had just purchased a house and um, we were trying to fix it up. And of course we had no money to do that. So I found this fabric at a yard sale and I was thinking, I'll just make a rug. So I took the fabric home and I shredded it into strips and I tied it all together. And I've crocheted since I was probably in second grade on and off. And so I started crocheting these fabric strips together, sort of making a rag rug. And I was only two feet in and the rug was so heavy and it was so thick. And I just started crying thinking this is like not going to be a, <laughs> this is not a rug. <laughs> this isn't even close to a rug. No one's going to want to stand on this. They're going to trip on this. And I just kept making it. Cause I was like, well, I'm this far along. Maybe I'll put it somewhere and the kids can just lay on it or something, or that it can be a dog bed. So I kept going and then ransom had just woken up from a nap and I picked her up, sat in the beanbag, put her on my lap and I put this rug on on her and I and I was finger crocheting it while she was sitting on my lap she always needs to kind of be touching me so I figure oh, okay well I can crochet this while she's sitting on my lap and we'll just put the the rug on both of us and I put it on her and I literally felt her body relax and that's something that she had not done since she was born her body never just like melted into mine. It never just cuddled into me. She was always very erect and and upright and um, almost like on high alert. So um, she, uh, she just sort of melted into me with this rug, which is in that moment became a blanket. (laughs) So I continued with it. I kept making it. It was not very pretty. 
I didn't know how to sew. So I had tied all the ends of the fabric strips together and I completed it. We used it to help her sleep. She started sleeping through the night for the first time ever. And then my husband, um, he gets really anxious from work. So I, I made one for him. So I started making them and perfecting the process a little bit more. So I, over the next year, was able to get the process down to two days to make one blanket. And people started finding out about them. My friends started asking for them to help their kids sleep. And I finally asked a friend to help me make them in my garage. And she did. And so we started making them. And I was able to, you know, make two blankets a week or four blankets a week, finally. And a few people started posting on Instagram about them. And we started getting a lot of requests. And I actually didn't know how to charge for them. So I was only charging like one or $200 per blanket. And then finding out later that the fabric alone was costing more than that. <laughs> so I just wasn't pricing things out, right? I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. So um, had a neighbor help me with some of the pricing issues and I learned how to sew. And so the blankets were no longer tied together in strips, but the strips of fabric were sewn together and um, we would crochet them and make these amazing, beautiful blankets And we just started growing like that online. Uh, LA Times reached out to me. Nordstrom reached out to me, a couple bigger companies. And I did some collaborations with them. The LA Times did a big article on me and us. And that was kind of amazing. And it definitely gave me the confidence to move forward and making this into an actual company. Um, We only use dead stock fabrics, meaning we only use fabrics that other companies have already ordered and purchased and realized they don't need all of them or for whatever reason they're damaged or they can't use it. And there's nothing actually really wrong with the fabric. Sometimes it'll have discolorations, but it's something we can totally use to make these blankets. So that's how we get our fabric. I've been pretty strict with only purchasing dead stock fabric as a way to be as sustainable as possible. There's lots of ways to be sustainable. This is the way that I chose. And it's been amazing. And it kind of makes each blanket a piece of art because each one is completely different. And it's definitely been an adventure. So it's been about two years now. And we actually also did a Kickstarter to get started to to get a warehouse and be able to actually hire some employees to help make the blankets. And I've learned so much and I'm really proud of where we're at now. I can't believe that it's been about two years since actually working in in a warehouse with a production team and not just out of my garage. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, that's a startup story. The dead stock concept. I feel like I saw that on Instagram a while ago, but sort of forgot And that is what's so special about it. As someone who really tries to wear as much cotton as possible, I love that these incredible blankets are cotton. Because to your point about a lot of the things that were on the market previously, it's how I feel about heating pads, where I know the value in them, but I hate how they feel on my skin. And I don't want to have a piece of clothing separating my skin and the heating pad. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I need to because I hate how icky they feel and how sterile they are. So I think what's so amazing is, you know, I scroll through your Instagram and your website often at how beautiful they look, how cozy they look, and clearly how comforting they are. Does Ransom have an understanding of her role in the company's reason for being? Sort of. We've definitely like shot little videos and stuff with her. And, and I ask her, like, um, do you know that this was for you that we did this for you? And she'll say, yeah, (laughs) kind of, he gets it. And I go, do you, I have asked her in the past, like, do you, do you know why this was created for you? And she used to say, because sometimes my body hurts me. Mm. And the heavy blanket helps me. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> my heart. My heart. I want to give her a hug, but I know that's not helpful. <laughs> well, Pamela, your story is incredible. And I give you so much credit for doing what you're doing to support your daughter and for other people who have other 
issues and sensory issues. And just in general, I know a lot of people use weighted blankets and the value of them. I'm sure, you know, as a mother, it's like, of course, I'm going to do this for my child. But it's clear that you've taken it to the next level, which is incredible. How can people learn more about you, your story, Ransom, and of course, order a blanket? Well, we're pretty active on our Instagram, which is uh, sheltered.co. That's our Instagram. And then our website is full of our story and some updates on on Ransom and the blankets. That's shelteredco.com. We had a blog going for a while, but it's mostly just me managing everything. (laughs) It's too much right now, but hopefully if we get some more team members on, we'll be able to update that a little bit more. Our story is online. There's a lot of articles that have been written about us online and in the press section of our website. And it talks about how we use dead stock and how everything is handmade. Everything is made in Los Angeles. And I want everyone to be able to have them because they are life-changing. I love that so much. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Amanda Grisillo for the design.